Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Trial Brief. Back on Valentine's Day in 2018, we all watched with horror as the events unfolded at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, uh, which left 17 dead and 17 injured. It was due to a teenager opening fire with a semi-automatic weapon, and he ended up walking out of the building while mixing in with the fleeing students. And that day, 14-year-old Jamie Guttenberg was one of those victims. Today, I have the honor of speaking with who I feel is this country's leading voice. It's our national voice against gun violence. And a lot of you know Fred Guttenberg, and a lot of you have have seen Fred Guttenberg, interviews with Fred Guttenberg, because he has been front and center on this issue. You know, when I think of Fred, I've been following for these past couple of years. I think of courage, I think of strength, I think of commitment, a sense of purpose. But most importantly, you know, I think of Fred as Jamie's dad, you know, and I think of Fred as Jesse's dad. And it really is uh, an honor to have him here to talk about his book, Find the Helpers. And Fred, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the introduction, because what you said at the very end of it really sums it all up. Everything I do, I'm Jesse and Jamie's dad. Yeah. And be- and before uh, tragedy struck, you know, you weren't a public figure. And, you know, this isn't something you sought out, you know, or anything like that. And this book, and again, it's titled Find the Helpers, What 9-11 and Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope. One of the things that I didn't know, and, and I've seen a lot of, of your interviews, and I've read a lot of interviews, and I've seen your website, and I, I didn't realize, and I, I, I don't know if it was because I didn't, wasn't paying attention or that I was so focused on Jamie and the story of Jamie that I, I didn't realize about your brother, Michael. And, yeah. and you... I mean, the fact that you were still grieving about losing your brother when Parkland happened, and maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, listen, um, my book, originally, the intention was to tell my story, which is being a part of two American, distinctly American tragedies, one rooted in foreign terrorism, one rooted in domestic terror, I would call it. My brother ran the triage for 9-11 with a group of about 10 other doctors, was deputy medical director of the New York Fire Department. And my brother is one of those guys who runs into tragedy when people like me are running away from it. And he just was wired that way. And so when 9-11 happened, knowing my brother's office was around the corner, my family and I, we knew where my brother was going to end up. And all morning long, all afternoon, trying to reach my brother, and we couldn't. Turns out, he was in the World Trade Center when it collapsed. With this group of 10 other doctors, they were originally trying to set up a triage in the basement level of the building. And amazingly, while everything around them turned to rubble, this room did not collapse that they hid out in. But they breathed in all that toxic stuff. He thought he was going to die there. He didn't. And like all American heroes, he didn't run. Spent the next 16 days at ground zero treating patients. Unfortunately, 2013, the cancer that resulted from that 
hit him. Initially, he had a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. He had surgery, chemo, radiation, and amazingly, it seemed like he was cancer-free until 2016 when it came back, this time in his lungs, his stomach, his liver. My brother died October 17, 2017. He was a true hero. And I'm one of five kids. We all grew up on Long Island. My parents are still alive. We had never really dealt with grief before in my family. It just wasn't our experience until my brother got sick. And uh, amazingly, my siblings and I and my parents all managed to really be with him for that last month in hospice. We were grieving when he died. He's only a year younger than me. We had many of the same friends. We were very close. Around January 2018, I really started trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. Because before my brother died, I had sold my business. So I had the good fortune of having nothing to do in the year that he was sick. I could go back and forth from Florida to New York to be with him, take care of him, help him. When he died, for the first time in my adult life, I had no purpose. And in January of 2018, I started trying to figure out what I'm going to do again. Started looking at businesses, started looking at jobs. I was complaining to all my friends and anyone who would listen that how crazy I was going because I needed a purpose. Then February 14, 2018 hit. My daughter and my son went to school like any other normal day on a day of love. And there was a shooting and my daughter didn't come home. Yeah. Before we talk a little bit about that, I, you know, you talk in the book about uh, Jesse's role, you know, in the family and, and Jamie's role in the family. And I think it's really important if you can just tell us about Jamie, tell us about her role in the family and, and tell us about that dynamic. You know, listen, Jamie was what I call the energy in our house. She was silly. She was talkative. She could make you laugh hysterically. She was also stubborn, so she could sometimes get you very worked up and make you yell. But one thing she always did, didn't matter who you were, she always made you respond. Jamie was not just the energy in our house, but in every room that she went in. My son is a bit more chill in his dynamic. And it was good because he really, he and his sister, while they had their normal sibling stuff, they played off each other pretty well. Jamie was a person who knew right from wrong, who was tough as nails, who put herself between somebody being bullied and a bully just to make it stop, who volunteered her time for kids with special needs. She just had that moral compass that you hope our kids grow up with. She had it. She knew right from wrong. She knew what she wanted out of life. And she was a kid who was not going to veer off course. She had her future figured out. The thing about Jesse and Jamie is Jesse, my son, is a bit more chill. But the one thing about him, he watched after his sister like a hawk. He made sure she always was safe. Jamie was the kind of kid who would take things on, not always worry so much if what the result of it was, but Jesse was always looking after her. It's why on February 14th, when Jesse called me just after 2 p.m., uh, Jesse could be a jokester, and he said, yeah. I said, what? 
And he said, Dad. And I said, what? He goes, there's a shooter at my school. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I didn't know at first if I should take him seriously until he said, and I can't find Jamie. Because he did not mess with her safety. And right. The second he said that, I knew he was serious. And I just said, where are you? And he said, I'm running with everybody else, but I need to turn around. I can't find Jamie. And I said, you do not turn around. You keep running. And I had to keep him on the phone, and I had to keep him running because he would have turned around and run into that building where he knew she was, the freshman building, and he would have ended up a victim too. So he, listen, he lost his baby sister. It's been a very tough thing because, you know, he heard the bullets that killed her. He, to this day, believes if given the chance, he possibly could have stopped it. And, you know, nothing I tell him will convince him otherwise because he loved her. That was his baby sister. Yeah. There are so many powerful moments in the in the book. One of them, to me at least, was when you describe, you know, that morning. And, and, and it sounds like a morning that most of us have. And it sounds like... <laughs> You know, and, and it was, yeah. for, for you to describe it was, was really powerful. And, and why don't you just, if you can, just just tell us how that how that went down. Yeah, it was the most typical normal morning that could be. Remembering that it was Valentine's Day, this was the year. I really wanted to introduce my kids to the romance of Valentine's Day. And so the day before, actually, I bought this equipment and digitized my wedding video. They had never really watched it because it was on a VHS tape and we didn't have a VCR recorder. We really hadn't shown it in the house for years. And I was like, you know, I really want them to watch it. My wife and I want to watch it with them. So I spent the day before digitizing it. On the morning of February 14th, I still needed to finish it. And my kids were also running late for school. And so I was rushing them out the door because they needed to get to school. But I also wanted to get back to work on this video. And they were running late. They were arguing about it. Again, nothing abnormal about that. Blaming each other. It's your fault. It's your fault. My dogs needed to be taken care of. You know, my wife needed to get out the door. It was a normal morning. And what I remember about the morning, what I tell everybody now is to never forget. It was such a normal morning. I was so busy rushing them out the door. I didn't say the final words that I should have said, which are, I love you. My final words were, you got to go, you got to go, you got to get to school. Never in a million years did I think gun violence was going to become our family story. I expected my kids home. They went to school to learn. Parkland, Florida is a community that is not one where violence exists. It is the community you go to for safe, wonderful schools. I sent my kids to school. I rushed them out the door. The last words my daughter heard from me were, you got to go, you got to go. It wasn't, I love you. I tell every parent, every person that I talk to now, you make sure when you walk away from someone you love, you look them in the eyes and you tell them you love them with meaning and honesty because you never know when it's going to be the last time. The reality of America and gun violence today any moment could be it. Yeah, and you, you you put it you put it so well in the book when you when you said that an intense tragedy like this it changes your framework of how you live your life, right? And yep. and you 
you know, you, you have this message in there, you know, live your life every day with the understanding that there may not be a tomorrow. And it really is something when you read about the details, you know, of that day. You know, I'm really interested in how your role in being an advocate against gun violence, when and how did it take root? The first 24 hours after Jamie was killed, I would call myself in a tailspin. It was, it was just like, I don't really remember what I actually understood about what happened. I knew my daughter was shot. I knew I was meeting with law enforcement. I knew I had a plan of funeral. I knew I was waiting for the official death notification. I knew all that. And yet it didn't really register with me gun violence. I tell people all the time, that first 24 hours, there are things that I remember with such clarity. It's like they happened a minute ago. And then there are parts that just didn't register that I just, I just don't remember. And it didn't register with me that in spite of everything I knew, this was gun violence until the next night when I went to the vigil in Parkland and I got there and the mayor asked me if I wanted to speak when I got there. And so I said, sure. Now I hadn't prepared anything. So I go up on the stage and I just look out amongst the audience trying to figure out what I'm going to say. And I see thousands of people. They're all crying. And for the first time in 24 hours since my daughter was killed, it hit me. Our community, my family, were just ripped apart by gun violence. It finally hit me. I got up there and I talked about feeling broken. I told the story of the morning when I said goodbye to my kids and I, and I ended the conversation kind of saying I don't know what I'm going to do next and as I'm driving home from there I couldn't stop thinking about that concept of not knowing what I do next and I walked in my door and I looked at my family and friends who did not come with us and were still in my house and I just said I am going to break that effing gun lobby that's what I am going to do I'm going to break their effing gun lobby. I'm going after their money. I'm going after them everywhere. This is the last time they will ever get away with having a say on our public safety. And I made that my life purpose. And about a week later, I get a phone call from our next president, Joe Biden. An amazing guy, an amazing call. And over the course of this call, more towards the end, he asked me what my plan was. And I said, I really don't know. I just know that I want to break that effing gun lobby. And he started talking to me about mission and purpose. And that just registered with me. It resonated that, those words from that day forward. This has been my mission. This has been my purpose. And we are succeeding. And we're going to succeed. And we're going to get comprehensive gun safety legislation done in this country. You know, we haven't had, quite obviously, our last president wasn't that person. And that leads me to no. it leads me to the State of the Union in 2019. Yeah. The reason it hit me when you spoke up at the State of the Union, what you did was voice so many of our feelings at the time. Because there were so many of us screaming at the TV, 
at that moment as well. And I want you to take us through that a little bit, if you could. Yeah. The early part of that night, he started with this whole violence is all because of illegal, build the Southern wall, battle stop violence, garbage. And I was getting angry already because I, I wanted to just see how bad my daughter was killed by a teenage American male. But I bit my tongue. Later into the speech, he started with the, I will defend your Second Amendment rights which are under attack all over the country. Taking on his role as a megaphone for the NRA, he used that line multiple times. And every time he uses that line, his sycophants start sending me some really aggressive, nasty messages. Okay? And so every time he uses that line, it puts people like me who want to do something about gun violence at risk. Because he incites people with that line. So he used that line, and I just wanted to scream then, but I didn't. until. Everyone on the Republican side of the aisle jumped up and started hooting and hollering like a bunch of well-trained animals, and I lost it. And I stood up, and I said, what about victims of gun violence like my daughter? That's it. Nine words. And for that, I was immediately detained and arrested. I was removed and put in cuffs way faster than anybody who attacked our Capitol last week. It was immediate. It was a very rough night. My phone was in the speaker's office because I was there as her guest. It's a really important part of that night because for my family, not being able to reach one or the other on a cell phone is triggering. Because the day my daughter was killed, we couldn't reach her on her cell phone. We did not yet know that she was murdered, but we knew we couldn't reach her. She wasn't responding. And now I put my family in a position of trying to call me because of what happened at the State of the Union and they couldn't reach me. I was being taken away, handcuffed, to a detention facility without my phone, and they weren't able to reach me for hours. My only regret from that night is what I put my family through. I was very upset with myself that I let my emotions get to me, but the reality is that night ended up giving me hope and inspiration in spades, because when the speech was over, Speaker Pelosi and Congressman Ted Deutsch turned into my helpers. They immediately, they didn't go out and do media and press. They went and they started calling the Capitol Police, and they said, he's to be let go. Eventually, they let me go. Speaker Pelosi sent her vehicle to come get me with her staff, and while I was in the vehicle being taken back to the hotel. Her staff said, Speaker Pelosi wants to talk to you. So she called the car, spoke to her through Bluetooth. I was devastated. I thought she was going to be so upset with me. I was there as her guest. I thought I embarrassed her. And I apologized. And she just said, what are you apologizing for? You spoke for America tonight. You said what we all felt. And then she started to tell me, you probably don't even know. I tore up the speech at the end of the night. <laughs> I had no idea because I was removed. So she she made me feel better. She lifted me from this miserable, horrible moment. But the next day, this country was talking about gun safety. The next day, because of what happened, the conversation was around supporting what I did and talking about gun safety. 
had I not done that, there would have been no talk about what to do with gun violence following that State of the Union speech. It doesn't matter that 40,000 people a year are dying. People would not have been talking about it. And because of my outburst, people were. And so the next day, this country turned into my helpers. And I, and I, to this day, while I'm still really devastated over what I put my family through, I don't have regret over the way it worked out. Right. This whole concept of helpers. You know, in your case, you found helpers in, in some really, really interesting places. And yeah, you mentioned to us, uh, you told us about President Biden, soon to be President Biden, how he responded and, and he became a helper and, and Speaker Pelosi. And you also mentioned the book, other members of, uh, in government who, mm-hmm. um, who, who were there. Uh, you also talk about the media and that, you know, there were, there were people in the media who were also helpers, but you also talk about people we don't know and we would never know. And, and right. those are really, to me, I, I really, I drew a lot of inspiration from that. And I, I'd like you to share that with us. Yeah. And, and just real quick, the point I was trying to make about people in media and politics is we all hear all the time, you know, politicians saying media stinks. And my experience with them was they're human beings, just like us. They've got hearts like us, minds like us, and that the truth is they're all decent. And they're all worried about the people they love, too. And the story mattered to them and it resonated because they have children that go to school. They have children that go to movie theaters. And so I just found the media to be decent, concerned, and I'm very thankful for the fact they gave the platform to me and others to continue talking about this. But when I really started with this idea of helpers, the person who stands out for me the most is a person I've never met. Really one of the heroes of my adult life. She is the lady who went to where the triage was set up on 9-11. Now, my family and I, by early afternoon, started to think the worst that my brother was gone. And by mid-late afternoon, we were convinced and we started to prepare ourselves. But amazingly, this lady went to the triage and said to all the first responders, I'm sure you have loved ones that you would like to talk to. Give me a name and a phone number. I'll call them for you. And this lady, around four in the afternoon, called my parents and just said, I've spoken to your loved one. He's alive. He's working. He will call you when he can. That was the first time of life we had of my brother that day. I will never know who this person is, but she's one of the great helpers of my lifetime. I highlight her because I really do want everyone to know we all have our stories like that. We all have these helpers in our life, some larger in scope than others, some more obvious than others. and. They get us through life. They carry us. They lift us. And I'm so thankful for her. That's just one example. But, you know, there are so many other examples. The day Jamie was killed, one of my really, he was a really great friend back then. He's become like family now. When we couldn't find Jamie or locate Jamie or talk to Jamie, he happened to have been a local law enforcement officer. He ended up going back to the school and convinced the uh, medical examiner 
to let him look around. And he found my daughter. And he's going to have to live for the rest of his life with the image of my daughter lying there on the ground. He is the reason that we learned far earlier that evening about Jamie than the other families learned about their loved one. There's my other friend who I grew up with, who literally stayed by my side for two weeks. He took me to the funeral home the day I had to plan a funeral, who stayed outside the room in a completely, in a way where I had no idea that he was there to give me privacy, but close enough to listen to every detail so that I wouldn't forget a single one. These helpers, they carry us. Then there's the helper who has no idea he was a helper to me. And you're a New Yorker, so you'll appreciate this. And I write about it in the book, but it's Billy Joel. Billy Joel has gotten me through pretty much every significant moment in my life. He is my all-time favorite musician. His music just means the world to me. On my worst days after Jamie was murdered, I used to just simply, I'm a car nut, I'm a Billy Joel nut. I would leave my house, I would go in my car, and I would take myself on the ground. And I would just put on my Billy Joel music. And I could clear my head, and I could get myself grounded, and I could keep myself moving forward. And I'm so glad you asked about it, because the helpers that really ultimately are part of my every single day, it's people like that. I'm thankful for the media. I'm thankful for the politicians. But it's, it's, it's those everyday people in my life that carry me. Yeah, and, and that's what the book's about. You know, the, the book takes its title uh, from a quote from Fred Rogers, as we all know, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Rogers, and he had given Mr. Rogers. An, right, and he had given an interview back in 1999, and he told the story about how his mother used to say, whenever there was some catastrophe, yep. um, always look for the helpers. And he said, because the, if you look for the helpers, you will know there's hope. You you basically show us that all of us can become agents for positive change, right? And what you do is you help us identify the helpers, right? And and once you know there are helpers, then I, I think that that gives hope. What I hope people do after reading the book, and especially in the environment that we're in today with COVID, I mean, we're going to be 400,000 dead soon, is that people always, after reading this book, become clear on who their people are, who their helpers are. So that you don't feel lost. So that you know who's there for you. And if you don't know who your helpers are, go to a place of worship. Go to a community center. Google is your friend. There's so many amazing resources. But there are people there for all of us. And we just have to be willing to let them into our lives. I would also tell people, if you're in a position where you can be a helper, where you can just be there for somebody, do it. I, I've been asked on some of these other interviews, like, how would I coach people on being a helper? And my answer to that is, don't think about it. Just get in the habit of being there for people. If we could start thinking of life that way, we're all going to be better for it. I am a guy who's gone through two 
prolific tragedies within four months of each other, one of which was the loss of my daughter due to gun violence. And yet, I looked forward with hope because of the people who are part of my life. I don't want to end this without asking you about orange ribbons for Jamie, because um, I, I think it's something that's that's really important, and I'd love for you to share that with us. Yeah, so my daughter's favorite color was orange, and the night she was killed, her dance sisters got together with the dance studio and made orange ribbons. And the next day, they came over our house all wearing their orange ribbons, and they brought orange ribbons for the family. They went up to Jamie's room and had a very emotional gathering in her room and they took pictures and posted it and before you knew it the dance world was dedicating the rest of their season to jamie and they were all wearing orange ribbons and broadway was now doing the same and lion king and hamilton and other shows their performers were wearing orange ribbons so jamie was murdered on the 14th she was buried on about five days later and in that time frame, these things are happening. And at her funeral, I spoke about this orange ribbons movement that started because of my daughter. I didn't really know at the time what it meant, though. I just knew people were reacting to what happened to her. And a few weeks later, I was in a Home Depot wearing my orange ribbon. And someone came up to me and said, what's that for? And so when I told them, they said, do you know that's the color of the gun safety movement? And I had no idea. So I went home and I told my wife, I want to make this the symbol of the gun safety movement. And from that, I decided to start Orange Ribbons for Jamie, which is a foundation geared towards educating on why Jamie's life was cut short, but also on honoring those things that matter to Jamie in life, like anti-bullying programs, like supporting programs for kids with special needs, like the Humane Society. My daughter, my whole family, we're dog obsessed. But I think the thing I'm most proud of is the college scholarship program that we started, which really is broken down into three categories. One is for a student who wants to go to school to become a helper, maybe a physician or a therapist or something else, but where you're going to help other people. That student needs to have um, community service because Jamie did. And that student needs to have at least a year in dance because Jamie did. The second category is a student who is going to go to school to major in dance, but they still need to have that background in community service. And then the third category, and the reason why we call it the Kids of All Abilities Scholarship, is for kids who have special needs, who may not go on to a traditional college education, but they're going to go on to some post-high school education. And we want to make sure we're providing scholarships for those kids as well. So we have our Kids of All Abilities Scholarship. I think the legacy of Jamie and Orange Ribbons for Jamie is ultimately going to be, while my daughter never got to go to college, she is going to help send kids to college. I'm going to add the link uh, for the foundation for Orange Ribbons for Jamie onto the website notes. I'm also going to put a link to your, there's a Find the Helpers podcast. Is that right, Fred? Well, I was doing the podcast all the way through the election, highlighting people who are making a difference. I'm not sure if I'm going to continue with it this year or not. 
So for now, that's pause. But I have a uh, personal web page with Find the Helpers information. And we'll see what happens with the Find the Helpers podcast in, in the months to come. Good. I'll add those links too. And I urge everybody to go there. And I urge everybody to to buy this book, Find the Helpers. It is inspirational, powerful, amazing. Fred, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. And I wish nothing but the best for you and your family. Thank you. I really appreciate your taking this time with me tonight. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.